Hey guys, Texas Slim here. It is a special recording today. I have a, a new friend, a good friend, uh, about to be a better friend that's joining the show today. What this is about, this, uh, this, this whole episode that we're releasing on the fly is basically about the Australian Beef Initiative and the Australian Beef Initiative Summit Series that we're going to kick off next month. Uh, right now, I have Jacob Wokey of Wokey Farms, and he's from Australia and he basically has uh, kind of pioneered into the space. He just got recently, not too long ago on Twitter, but there's a, there's a journey that we're going to talk to you guys about today. How the Beef Initiative has grown from, you know, small town Texas all the way to across the, uh, the oceans into Australia. And it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating journey. But before I go on anymore, I'm going to let you uh, meet Jake. Hey, Jacob, how are you doing today, brother? Good to have you. Doing great. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for having me. Uh, right now, it is 4.10 uh, in Texas, and that is central time, folks. And over in Australia, uh, it is 9, basically, in the morning, so 10 after 9 in the morning. So I believe right. we are 19 hours difference. You guys are 19 hours ahead of us here in Texas. Uh, you know, and I found that out whenever I kind of had been talking with Sil. Sil and Tony kind of helped us out with the, the Australian Beef Initiative idea and now the summit. So, Jake, why don't you kind of tell where you are located in Australia and kind of talk about your business and your path into the businesses that you're running right now. And then we'll kind of reverse back and start talking about the summits and the beef initiative itself. You've just handed me 90 minutes of talking points. So I know it. Yourself in. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, look, I'm in a town called Albury, which is on the Murray River, the main uh, river in Australia. It actually works as the border between New South Wales and Victoria. So I'm southeast. And I'm about three hours north of Melbourne, three hours south of Canberra. So I'm right in, uh, I'm, I'm in, my little town's about 80,000 people. And just north of us is a farming region called um, uh, Greater Hume and Riverina. And they're Australia's blue, blue ribbon, highly fertile, highly productive farming regions and expensive land uh, to match, of course. And my family came here from Germany. My grandpa on my father's side came about 50 what is it now? No, it'll be six, just over 60 years ago. And we've got a long history of self-employment. We always laugh that we're unemployable and we've been, we've been bullied by the market into being uh, self-directing, self-employed people. And it's true across, it's my sister, it's my cousins. You know, I, don't, I can't think of anyone in three generations that actually, in my family that actually holds a job. And that's kind of cool, but it's, uh, I think it paints a bit of a picture at the, at the same time. So to answer your question about farming, I guess we've got a mixed enterprise regenerative operation here. At the moment, we're farming about 300 acres on leased land. I don't own any farming land. Uh, we do grass-fed beef, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised eggs. We do uh, free-range pork. Uh, what else have I got? We're breeding lambs at the moment. So the lamb market in Australia is massive. You know, It's our biggest eaten meat over here. And we do everything holistically, so we're we're very conscientious about the inputs. Uh, we're a no chemical farm, and a couple of years ago, we when we were sort of getting going, I've, I've started on this journey about four years ago. No one, no one in my family has really farmed uh, animals before then. My grandpa did a little bit of sharecropping back in the day, and he had a small uh, piggery, but I never that was way that was almost before my father was born. 
uh, we've been getting going. And two years ago, I bought a butchery locally because it was becoming very evident to me that my farm business was not going to be viable locally with the local infrastructure that was available. I was just not going to be able to process enough beef and pork to build a business with the local butchers that we had here because it's, you know, it's not their wheelhouse. It's not their main concern. They're busy filling up their display cabinet and serving their customers. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind of a, of a journey the last couple of years. I just, I just purchased a portable chicken abattoir and a 48 foot semi box to build a new brooding shed in. Uh, we're not sort of, we're, we're, I'm trying to scale the operation. I, f- I feel like we're probably just about hitting uh, minimum viability in terms of mm-hmm. being able to uh, cash roll ourselves without me having to tip money in from my other businesses. I've got a few other stores in town that I've you know been working on since I left school. So we're, we're sort of just at that point now. And we're not, I'm not shy about wanting to scale or talking about wanting to scale and, and I guess attempt to showcase regenerative low input practices on a broader scale. I think that's something that's, that's important to feed the cities that we have here. Yeah. And that's a very good point. You and I were talking about, and thank you for that good review. Uh, We'll go deeper and deeper into it, but you and I were talking the other day and you were talking about exposure and we're talking about expanding out because you're kind of in between you ship to Melbourne and Sydney, as far as your products, correct? That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm actively uh, researching how to freight things all the time because everything I do, I freeze. I cry back and freeze all our produce. A lot of it's seasonal. You know, today I'm just looking down at the thing here. We're going to hit a top of 36 degrees today, which is about 110 Fahrenheit, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's oppressive. And, you know, having having pigs on pasture or meat chickens on pasture, that there's real production challenges. So, you know, our welfare commitment, we're trying to raise things seasonally and then rely on that product through off-peaks and have that continuity for our consumers. So we're having to rely on frozen freight and our freight networks in Australia. If you look at the size of Australia and the spread out of the population, uh, our freight networks, especially refrigerated, are really challenging. So I'm looking into that all the time, but I've just unlocked Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney, and most of the South Coast, which is sort of like Sydney uh, down on the coast in those little uh, shoreline towns there. So we're starting to push the product out there to whoever wants it. I'm probably not as interested in like um, finding a postcode and spending all my time and money marketing an easy to reach postcode. I'd rather be putting the produce in the hands of people who need and value it. Yeah, especially these days and times, because there's a lot of people coming out with a new form of awareness towards food, right? You know, ever since COVID, you saw over two years ago that, hey, something has to change, perhaps. And what I like about what we're doing right now with the Beef Initiative and what you guys are doing over in Australia as well is that there are a lot of intentional people out there and they're not as hard to find. What it really is about is basically go out and establishing some relationships with, you know, the people that are feeding you or want to feed you, right? You guys, farmers, I call them ranchers here in Texas, but I always said, hey, go shake your rancher's hand. And, you know, you've done a couple, you know, let's go back really quick and talking about scaling perhaps and getting a better awareness. You've already opened up your farm several times to where people came and had like an open house and you've done some workshops, correct? Well, for, for years there, like for the first few years, I was doing 
uh, free farm tours, either fortnightly or monthly. And that was generally a, a Sunday morning. I liked in our household, we called them church. Let's go to church and get these people <laughs> on the on the land. Joel Salatin, a very famous farmer in America, talks about his farm, uh, he, his animals being his co-laborers in his land healing ministry. And I love that. There's so many, there's so many layers and that just oozes uh, r- romance and integrity to me. Like I've definitely drunk that Kool-Aid. I think it's pretty fun, but the, the tours were a great way to connect. So for, for years there, we had every uh, two or four weeks, 40 to 50 people come along on a free farm tour. The last two years, I haven't done much of it because it's been so incredibly wet here that, you know, 70% of my main uh, lease, which is where we do our uh, farm tours and have our intensive enterprises like pigs and cattle it's just been underwater 70 percent of the farm for you know almost two years it's been incredible mm-hmm. so they've backed off but a few months ago we launched a Wolkie farm discovery day we called it where there was no booking needed turn up we're going to have a sausage sizzle my wife's cooking that we got coffee egg and spoon race bobbing apples and i brought all the animals uh, close so we didn't have to walk around the whole farm we could do a quicker tour and that was really a bit of a celebration that the floodwaters had receded and we wanted to make it a bit of a, a county fair you know an annual spring fair sort of thing and we had 400 people turn up to the farm on that day and you know probably half that number or a bit more was children which I, I i just to riff on that for a second it was really interesting because when i tell people we had 400 people come first thing they would say is oh yeah but but how many kids as if the kids didn't count right I'm like <laughs> you know stuff as if the kids don't, it's like stuff the parents. The parents are the one that it's like hard to sort of, you know, they've got the questions and the and, and the apprehensions and, and, and they're thinking too hard. It just all clicks for the kids. The amount of school tours sure. I do and you have these eight, 12-year-olds on the farm and you go, why put a pig in a shed when you can have a pig under a tree? And the, the, the children get it. So we had uh, 400 people and I celebrate the fact that maybe 250 of them were children. It was awesome. That's amazing. And, you know, we found that on our summits that we did here in the United in the States this year, we were in Colorado over at Jason Rick's uh, place and you've met Jason through social media now. And uh, there were kids, it was a two, it was a two and a half day uh, summit. And these kids came for two and a half days. Some people were camping out, some people, you know, it was quite the adventure. But the whole time we're out in his barn, it was kind of open aired. The whole time we had the summit, all you could hear were kids laughing and having a good time. That's what it's about. That's, you know, from day one, you know, that's what we have to get back to the source of the seed of our innocence, uh, of our curiosity, of our, you know, our strength of youth, our innocence of youth. And, you know, having the kids here, this is why we're doing everything that we're doing, correct? I mean, that's that's everything. Absolutely. I think if you're if you're at a farm tour or if you're sitting in church or if, or if you're at your local community hall and you can't hear kids screaming and crying, that social environment is decaying. It's dying. You mm-hmm. need to hear children cry. Like, so when I'm sitting in church and there's a kid down the back screaming in, in the back pews, uh, the, the pastors celebrate it. They go, you know, thank God for young people in the building. And and that should be a marker on our farms. You know, the average age of farmers is blowing out. You know, what is it? It's over 60 in Australia, I think now. And not only Same are the here. children not interested, but the parents don't want their children to be interested. And then their grandkids are already disconnected. So you've got grandpa still running the family farm and grandkid is in city with his dentist father completely disconnected. It's it's happened so fast. So we need young enthusiasm and vitality back on the soil. 
we have to 100%. And that awareness is something that I have to push. And I, I, you know, willingly push every day that you said around 60 years old in Australia, it's the same in the United States. It's like we're losing that brain trust. And if we lose that, it's gone. And, you know, we we both know this. Uh, A lot of people have been so separated, though, from not only the food and the land, but just the awareness of, you know, how things are, you know, how operations work, how basically they are businesses, you know, what involves this type of education, the family unit going out every day, you take your children to work, correct? Yes. Yeah. I've got two sons and my wife's pregnant with a third child and uh, we're homeschoolers and the boys, they come with me. It's just what we do. It's experiential training. It's observational science. It is, you know, it is school. It's the best school right now that I think in modern times that we can give to our children. And, you know, that's why we've got to get some new awareness going. I created a foundation here in the United States for ranchers to be able to start educating, open up the ranches like you're doing over there in Wilkie Farms. So I have this question all the time. How do I get into this? How do I become a regenerative farmer and rancher? So you're, you're, Jason has the same story in the United States. You guys are a lot of similar, similar in a lot of ways. So let's uh, talk about how you actually got into it. What did you use for education? I think that's something that people really want to know about. Sure. For me, it was, it was uh, pretty simple. It was YouTube and books. You know, and, and that might be some, in some circles, that could be heretic talk, you know, skipping <laughs> uh, skipping the ag class at university or college or, you know, but it, for me, it wasn't experience. I didn't have ex- experience apart from my own personal uh, situations that I was putting myself into. I actually started with an interest in gardening. So when we had my first son, Otto, who's five and a half now, uh, you know, you hold this uh, gift that's being given to you in your hands and, and you think I need to do everything in my power to do this right, you know, and whether that's uh, grow yourself as a person and iron out your own issues and addictions and, and biases or whatever it might be right down to what sort of food are we going to feed it? You know, like what, what do we, do we give it blended banana baby food on a spoon or do we give the kid a, cold snag for breakfast and a, and a runny egg yolk. And, and, you know, like there's a lot of different, I had all these things running through my head and I didn't have any sort of hard and fast ideals. And that sort of started our journey. And I started organic farming you know, just in my backyard. I, I live on a 800 meter town block. I don't live on the farms. And I started growing vegetables organically. And that got me into like this chemical rabbit hole, realizing, you know, how drenched and addicted our foods and soils are. And then just through the YouTube rabbit hole of watching different organic gardeners, I came across Joel Salatin and I thought, you know what, dad's, my father owns a hundred acres, 10 minutes out of town here. Uh, and he just, he was just set stocking 40 seers a year. So he'd buy in 40 yearling seers, leave the gates open as soon as the feed started disappearing, let them fatten up. The stock agent <laughs> would come and drench them twice a season and then they'd go on the truck. And that was the extent of it. And I said to dad, I watched this guy on YouTube and he reckons if we move the cattle more often, we'll grow more grass. And we'll be able to carry more animals and make more money. And do you mind if I do that? And by the way, I want to send one to the local butcher to, you know, eat it myself. And so that's sort of how we, I had my first, I guess, experience. And I was fortunate and blessed that I had that easy land access through my father. Uh, but the the resource bank for me was was books and YouTube. 
And interestingly, four, four or five years later down the rabbit hole now, I'm just looking over here, I've got my big uh, library of books. And when I'm shopping or, or going around traveling, I'm always going to bookstores or thrift stores and I will purchase any farming book I can find pre-1940. I don't mind whether it's chickens, pigs, cows, sheep, agroforestry, whatever it might be, because the late 30s, early 40s, when antibiotics got rolled into agriculture, there was just an immediate fallout of practice and knowledge. So if you pick up a book from 1935 and it's talking about your house cow having mastitis, there's all these um, first of all, there's the knowledge on how to sense it and and feel it coming onto the cow so you can get it early. And then there's all these remedies and practices and and medicinal herbs and whatever that you can use to steer that animal away from that infection. But if you pick up a book from 45, it's um, this is mastitis and this is the antibiotic and this is the dosage and the knowledge is gone. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm hungry. The books and YouTubes are, is so powerful but we've lost that it's it's like the the grandpa farmers that i said that we have now that average age of 60 they don't know that stuff anymore like there's a gap there's no. a fallout so it's up to us to go and uh re we're, we're relearning all this knowledge that served us for thousands of years it's so true uh, you just made me reflect on my family uh, you know we had you know my mother comes from a family of six we my father's family but you could tell when that generational sw uh, shift happened as far as losing that knowledge and people not caring as much i had an uncle that he didn't want to take over anything it was the 80s you know and here in the united states we had farm aid it, it was it was a bad time and all of that knowledge has been gradually taken out a generational shift and you know i i talk about how many ran you know how many ranchers we've lost how many farmers we lost over here um you know one thing that we don't understand as far as a society is basically you know one thing i always say is like we don't know why we desire what we desire anymore and that the reason is that because of the the chemicals because of the lack of basically true food intelligence from the 30s like you said to 1945 and we've got to get back to the source of the seed of the knowledge not of the academic institutional teachings we we need to we know where that has brought us and so Knowing all that information, really the education is out there in front of everybody. If you're a consumer or if you're a wanna-be producer, farmer, rancher, you can do it right now and you can take that action to go ahead and do it. Something like Jason did the same thing. He basically had some ancestral knowledge, but then he went out there and you know he learned on his own. And that's what we have to let people feel that they can be empowered to do. And one thing that I found out about us having these summits in the United States is that was a big call to action that people don't mind following up with as far as creating uh, networks, uh, relationships, reaching out, continuing the conversation after these summits. And so a lot of people keep on asking you, it's like, hey, why are you having the summit? So can you kind of tell everybody your perspective from a producer in Australia? What is it in it for you to be part of a Beef Initiative Summit series? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that farms have the opportunity to play uh to, to play a really important part of social institutions in, in our communities. Like why is the farmer just the guy hundred K's out of town that, that talks too slow and, and has a dirty old ute? 
you know, it, 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 farmers have a lot to offer and farms themselves with, with crops and animals and, and children and everything have a lot to offer. It's, it's a really, it's a visceral way of learning that people can experience. So for, for me, I'm open, I'm open to opening my farm for community events for of all types. I, I, I welcome and want people to use our farm as a community center to, to just get them. Cause I'm passionate about uh, animal welfare. That's my number one big thing. So any reason I can use to get people on my land and then I can turn the screws in a little bit, talk to them about welfare. I'm happy to, but having fallen in with the Australian beef initiative boys, which was through my butchery, they called me up and they said, we heard you do custom processing for other producers. Could you slaughter a couple bodies of beef for us? and pack it and ship it down to Melbourne for our consumers. So I did that. And then on the packing slip, I saw uh, currency paid and some of the people had paid for their meat orders with Bitcoin. So I said to the guys, oh, what's this? What are you doing with Bitcoin? Because I was uh, familiar with Bitcoin, but I hadn't really met many people in my community that were. So I was a little bit of a, a lone ranger. And, and all of a sudden, I was dragged into signal groups and put on Zoom chats and just uh, bombarded with networking and, and pulling and tugging and sharing. And the, the, the thing I love about the ABI crew and the event that we've got, we're having to the farm is that there's just this uh, upfront shared, shared value system. I, like, I don't know these people. They're growing up in the city. I'm growing up in the country. We've got different backgrounds, but the fact that we're interested in Bitcoin, like, you know, if someone's interested in Bitcoin, that they've got an investment in being a self-responsible, self-sovereign person, and, and they, don't, they don't want this um, over-governance, you know, they, they want to be self-reliant, they want to be community-based, and, and there's like so many things that sort of escalate from that. But I thought these are the people that I want to have on my farm. So as soon as they said, well, Texas is coming from America and we want to do a summit. I'm like, I want to be the first one and I want to be the biggest. Let's make it happen. <laughs> I know. It's like, I remember when you first came in and said, hey, I'll do it. And I remember that night it was on Signal. And, uh, you know, because we did, we established chat rooms. This is, I want to tell everybody how this kind of transpires because anybody can be doing this. That's what I'm wanting everybody to hear from me is this is, you don't have to ask for permission. Everybody can do whatever type of networking reaching out going out and shaking a rancher's hand. And so what happened with, you know, here in the United States is that I've known Syl and Tony for a while. They're over there outside of Melbourne. And so they've been following the beef initiative for a long time. Well, they started talking about you. We need to get you to Australia. We need to get you to Australia. And some people over in Australia had already done the bush bash. They were starting to get together doing their own kind of little beef, whatever you wanted to call it. And then uh, my good, friend and now brother Izzy kind of heard about from Wizard of Oz and so here we go everybody just starts doing this networking and it and we don't have to basically worry about like you said I never really have any like apprehensive whenever I'm going into a, a group of people that are all interested in Bitcoin. It does. It takes the layer off and everything becomes transparent. Everybody has obligation, accountability. You already feel that. So you know you you can cut to the chase pretty fast as far as like, hey, what do you guys want to do? And all of a sudden, hey, let's have an Australian beef initiative. Can we? And that's when everybody, Izzy approached me. 
me and Izzy have become very good friends. A lot of networking has happened, and it's been such a short period of time that I don't think real people realize this hasn't been going on for a long time. But all of a sudden, you're kicking off the summit, you know, at your farm, and then we're going to have two to three to four more ranch tours or farm tours as we I fly over to Australia and, you know, we kick it off at your place. We don't know where this is going, but we're not really worried about it because we know that we can have that transparency and we can work together as a small community, basically, is what we are right now, trying to spread into a bigger community, just as you are with your business, with your enterprise that you're establishing. So let's talk about that real quick. Let's go through because here, you know, I call it ranches, you call it farms, you have lamb, you have pork, you have poultry, you have beef, of course. Um, let's talk about the beef side of things. You have a very good genetics. You have some good genetics of a cow over there that you really like to talk about. And then let's go through the raising part of it. Let's go through the harvesting and then the market access that you create by having your own arbitrage, access to your butchery. You even have a restaurant, right? Yeah, I do. I've got a, I've got a seven-day uh, breakfast, lunch cafe in town here. Yeah, so when I ran the numbers on the farm enterprise going back four years ago to kick off, it made sense to buy uh, yearling steers in the Australian market that were about seven or eight hundred dollars at the time, and then finish them off, you know, doing our daily moves and whatever we do, and then processing them. Uh, there was a lot of margin left over. It was a really good little enterprise, and then very quickly through COVID and the northern drought, um, and then the drought breaking and all these sorts of uh, economic influences, those yielding steers went from $800 to $2,300 really quickly. Wow. And it just smoked it for me. Like all of a sudden, the $800 yielding steer was probably what it cost me to raise it myself, to, to have a calf and then raise it to a year old, probably be around that somewhere. Uh, but doing not doing it myself meant I could double my stocking rate because I didn't have to carry any cows. Right. And all of a sudden, the economics fell out. So I started looking into... Well, I'm going to have to breed cows now, which I sort of had wanted to do, but I told myself I didn't have enough land for it because at that time I was only farming 100 acres and it just economically it wasn't making sense with where we wanted to go. And then when I decided I wanted to, I needed to breed and I wanted to breed, I started looking for animals that could value add to our system and I thought a good way of value adding would be a colourful hide so I could tan that hide when I processed the animal and I could sell that and value add to my, add another uh, stream of income and value add to that animal and further respect that animal and the utility and and the tools that that animal's given us for our lives. So I bought some shorthorn cows with a, you know, brindle and strawberry roan, not brindle, um, roan colors, you know, blue and strawberry roan, gorgeous looking cows. But I was, it came in calf. I just really wasn't impressed with the calves. They were slow and doughy. We had a really challenging season, but we lost a few of them because we're underwater. And then uh, Dr. Max Golhane, a good friend of mine who's also involved in the Australian Beef Initiative, and I've just done a podcast with him, which is available on YouTube. Uh, he had done a farm tour with me, which is how we'd met. And he moved up to Brisbane to uh, work at a hospital there. And he went to the local farmer's market and shook his farmer's hand and started talking to the <laughs> beef producer there. What sort of breed of cattle do you do? And the breeder, whose name is Brian Usher, or the farmer, he said, I use the apocalyptic cow and they're called Nguni. And Max spoke and spoke and spoke to him about these Nguni, got home, flicked me a text, have you heard of these? And I bought my first Nguni bull 24 hours later, raced <laughs> up to Canberra, 
bought it down to the farm, threw it in. I didn't even look at a calendar. I just threw it straight in with my, you know, 40, 50 cows in the paddock and said, go you good thing. And we're getting our calves out of that joining at the moment. So that was about nine, 10 months ago and we're carving down right now. And so we're breeding this Nguni breed now, which is a South uh, American, South African breed, small framed, horned, uh, many different colors, but very fertile, very early maturing and very uh, disease resistant. They've got a high blood urea, which means that their metazolum works a bit closer to a goat than a cow so they can eat rank dry grass and thrive on it, not just exist on it. And all these things tick all my boxes of welfare, environmental stewardship, equaling a nutrient-dense uh, product to sell to our consumer. So now that we've got the ingunis on the farm, what we're doing is we do daily moves with holistic plan grazing. So every single day, our mob of cattle, uh, the breeding cows on the home farm, move to a fresh piece of pasture. They've got an open source uh, mineral lick, which we call our lolly trolley. So it's a big, it's a big shelter, peak shelter on skids. And there's all these different minerals in these tire tubs that we made. So, we, you know, they can uh, self-medicate and, and take their own multivitamins uh, as, as much or as little as they like. Things like seaweed meal, salt, lime, uh, copper sulfate, molybdenum, selenium. There's about 14 different minerals and licks in that. And, you know, that costs me, I think it cost me 30 cents roughly per head per day for the cows. But in the last two years, I've had I've had one vet bill of $380 and that was pulling out some afterbirth out of a cow uh, that we we needed some assistance with. But beyond that, you know, we've, we've, so we've got this input cost, but it, it, it's actually improving welfare, soil health, the whole lot. And then when we when we process the steers that we're growing out, we're running down uh, to use a local abattoir that's not mine. I've got my own chicken abattoir that I'm setting up, but I don't have the beef abattoir yet. We are working right. towards that. And then the animals come back to our butchery. We hang them for normally two weeks minimum in my cool room, my new cool room that I built. We've got UVP light uh, on the ceiling. So they're an ultraviolet frequency that can help sterilize and clean the air of airborne bacteria so we can hang our beef longer without having to worry about the surface molds. Because a lot of the time when you hang an animal in a cool room for a long period of time, you start to get these surface molds, which doesn't ruin all the meat on the inside, but it means when you're butchering it, you've got to trim that meat off. Uh, so you're you're um, losing yield. So the longer you hang an animal, you're, using, you're losing your moisture content, uh, which is fine. But if you're having to trim off all the bark off the outside of the animal because it's all contaminated, it can really destroy the yields that you're getting from these animals. That's what we found. I experimented with pushing. I, I hung one uh, T-bone rack in the in the cool room for 270 days, and wow. the meat was like <laughs> the flavor was crazy, and, yeah. and it wasn't for everyone. It was, it was like grilling blue cheese. Uh, but the yield, you know, I would have had to have sold those steaks for quadruple uh, market rate because of how far we push it. So we've just been experimenting with all that sort of stuff in here. But I think that probably gives you a bit of an overview of the beef. Enterprise. It does. Yeah. And it's good because I like, I'm starting to call it, you know, I started with food intelligence. I'm starting to say beef intelligence. And what you just gave is something that is extremely lacking across the globe as far as how do we get our meat? How should we get our meat? 
How should our meat be prepared? How should it be harvested? Who is actually looking after this animal? And, and are they concerned about animal welfare? There's so many questions and you just answered a lot of them right there. And I'm just gonna go through to do some touch points. You talk about the, the breed and the hide. I've seen, I've seen the New Guinea breed. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And your intentions were also to sell the hides. And so what you're doing is you really are going nose to tell as much as you can to leverage anything that you can get and harvest off that animal to one, to honor the animal, two, to basically, you know, uh, create revenue strength for you as a, as an entrepreneur and a business owner. And so what are you doing with the hides right now? What, what is your plan? Uh, do you have something that you've done with them? Do you taxidermy? What, what's going on with the hides? I've taken a few hides as I guess prototype samples just to learn mm -hmm. the system. So we've we've salted them in house. We've freighted them to a tannery, you know, down the road, down towards Melbourne, uh, just to sort of feel what it really costs. Because you can run your numbers on. Like I get people hitting me up all the time. What are your numbers on your egg enterprise? Or and there's a lot of people that sit in their bedrooms or their their studies or whatever wanting to get into farming and they're running numbers all the time, getting all these different data points from all these different farmers and really trying to shore up a sound business plan. But the reality is, is that those numbers, doesn't matter how good a job you do, it'll never match the expectation of actually doing it. So I would just say to people, just do it. Don't have to do it on a big yep. scale. If you want to run chickens, Thank go you. buy 20 chickens and run your own numbers. Don't worry about my numbers. You know, exactly. I'm happy to share as a benchmark. So I sent off two hides and learned a lot like i didn't i didn't probably salt them as good as i could after the fact somebody gave me a little bit of a tip about using some detergent that his grandpa taught him about you know learned all these different i learned if i roll my hides out fur down on my shed floor and salt them that the dogs will come and have a nibble at the edge of the hide you know all these little things that you i just like, never right. even thought i just thought i'll salt the hide and learning the logistics so i've, I've done my first couple they weren't in goonie because i don't have any in goonie that have come through to maturity yet they were some of my, uh, I had some red Angus on the farm that we slaughtered. But yeah, I'll get it. The hides will be tanned as uh, floor rugs, I think, more than the more than yeah. the leather market because it'll just be an easier barrier of entry to crack. I think, you know, wanting to get into uh, leather goods would be lots of fun and maybe one day we'll get there in the future. But if we're processing 30, 50, 80 head a year, I don't feel like that's many high quality, uh, colorful hides to sell into the market. I think that'll be pretty achievable. Yeah. And that's what, you know, in the United States, you look at the hide market and it was once something that was pretty used. It was, you know, somewhat thriving and everything. Well, the, you know, the multinational, you know, packers processing and how the beef industry has happened as a global stance. It's like, you know, farmers and ranchers don't even, you know, have a way to basically utilize those hides anymore in the United States and they go wasted yeah. and a lot of things just get destroyed and it's, it's a shame. And so, you know, that's what everybody needs to understand about the way you're approaching it. Regenerative farming and ranching really is about utilizing everything that you can, you know, and de decrease those input costs and leverage everything you can out of the cow. So well, how's, let's this? Talk how's this for the local hide scenario is the local, because there's no demand for hides anymore. If you, if you have a hide in your living room, it's, it's not really kosher like a, a lot of people don't you know you can't wear the fox fur isn't it funny right. that it's no longer socially acceptable to have a hide in your living room because it's like some part of a dead animal but then you've got 
clothing companies like Balenciaga sexualizing children for marketing purposes? Like what sort of social disconnect? Like you're eating the beef, why not honor the whole animal in its entirety? But because that that demand in Australia has dropped and also regulatory burdens, like t- uh, commercially tanny hides uh, in, a, in a big factory efficient way is is very uh, reliant on um, chemicals and, and nasty outputs, which if we did it the old way, it wouldn't have to be right. But the way it's done currently is it's 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 very regulated and burdensome to get into. So what the abattoir that I use does is they take all the hides, salt them, throw them in shipping containers, and then when the container's full, they sell it to China. So it gets freighted halfway across the world, and then it gets processed with no no regulatory interest. So be, because we've made it too hard here and too expensive because the the chemicals we're worried about the outputs. We just ship it halfway around the world and just let them use whatever nasties they want and then we'll buy it back off them with clean hands, put it on our and car get, seats or something. Yeah, and guess what happens in the United States? Guess where we buy all of our hides from? China. China, yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. You're welcome. A, yeah, there you go, man. That's how it works. And that's what people don't understand. They don't understand that the stuff gets taken around the globe, uses all kinds of energy. And so, you know, it's so subsidized in a way that people just really don't understand. And it's hard to compete with that whenever you're an independent farmer and rancher. And so once again, there's some beef intelligence for everybody. You know, um, we talked about aging beef and how you can age, a, you know, a, you know, a T-bone stack for basically 270 days. And it's some of the best tasting meat that you're ever going to have. Very few people will ever have that experience. You talk about the molding. But one thing also that I am going to start talking about in 2023 is the aging process is key to quality beef. And you do dry aging. And so tell everybody a little bit about dry aging. Well, once you understand the way that the factories uh, process these things, uh, you know, the bodies of beef and all proteins in general, you start to really understand some of the pressure points and corner cutting so if a if a slaughterhouse is you know slaughtering 500 cows a day they're pushing it into chill rooms sometimes these chill rooms are way below freezing they're not just cool rooms they're actually freezer rooms to get the body to set they need to drive the temperature down of the internal part of the body as quick as possible because if they just start butchering it when it's warm it's sloppy the meat's like jelly and it's really hard to work with and you won't get any cut steaks out of her or anything. So they, they drive it down in temperature as quick as possible. And as soon as it hits temp, they bring it out again and they chop it up, put it in boxes and sell their box meat. And there's no time given to that uh, that body of beef or lamb or whatever it might be to uh, relax. And when, when the body of beef hangs for two weeks, it's it's releasing a bit of moisture, excess moisture. You, it looks like there's a puddle of blood underneath it, but quite often it's just like liquid protein, hemoglobin or something like that. And the flavor develops, um, and it just comes. It just becomes an all-round better eating experience. But the issue why the packers can't do this is if you if you think that they're doing well, let's run the experiment. They're doing 500 bodies of beef a day, let's say, and they've got refrigeration to handle 500 in and out every day. If they want to carry those body of beef for a fortnight, they need to 14 times their refrigeration space. Like, it just doesn't make any – like, why would they do it? In, instead, they just put a body of beef in a minus 40-degree Celsius freezer and chill it quickly for a couple of hours and bring it out. And I don't know if, if anyone listening or yourself, Slim, has ever tried to hot bone an animal. Uh, we yeah. we we slaughtered a cow in the paddock, oh, must be three or four years ago now, that wasn't doing well. 
and we decided just to um, slice it up for dog meat. So we had a big 44-gallon drum there, and we're just trying to carve the meat off the bone and put it in this drum. And it was like having taking a hot knife to uh, aeroplane jelly, jello. I don't know if you have jelly over mm-hmm. there. It was just impossible, and it, and it made you not want to eat the stuff, you know. Like we, that wasn't our plan for that animal, but it was. You you understand like that there's a there's a natural process that our our people have been using forever. Like you can find old old butchers posters in america especially and you've got these butchers that are setting up in in pioneering era or pictures drawing pictures whatever it might be and they're standing behind the counter with the wooden table and the apron on and they've got primals they've got four quarters and hind corners just hanging behind them not refrigerated in open air and you know grandma comes in and, and wants a strip steak and the butcher just turns around and cuts it off the body and gives it to her and now if if we saw somebody hanging a piece of meat in the open air without refrigeration, they'd be shut down by about 14 different, you know, auditing agencies, lickety split. And those people were healthy and they were um, thriving and surviving on those sorts of diets. And and we're replacing knowledge with sterility and, and onerous compliance and fees to regulatory bodies and audits. 100%. I mean, that's that's a perfect and eloquent way to put it because the, there's so much, once again, beef intelligence, you know, going into the, just the aging of the beef itself that, you know, a lot of people that are, you know, that they even like uh, upsell wet aging, upsell certain types of packaging. And it's, and, it's, and it's effective because people do not understand basically ha- where we came from as far as the processes. What our ancestors taught us has been sterilized. It has been prohibitioned in, in a way that the general public really just doesn't understand. And that's why, you know, that's why you, you are an educator. Every day of your life, you're educating people. I mean, anybody that you're talking to, you have a workforce. And so here in the United States, you know, we, we uh, with the Beef Initiative, uh, we have Cole Bolton of KNC Cattle and we have Holy Cow of Holy, uh, or Holy Cow in, uh, they're out of Lubbock, Texas. So they all have different protocols. They do different things. But one thing you hear in the United States is hard to find a lot of good people to work anymore in this industry. And so, you know, sometimes that's a pain point that's hard to overcome. I heard you about a week ago saying, man, the people that are working for us, it reminded me what Will Harris said out there, White Oak Pastures. You know, you're starting to get a lot of people come and they want to work for you. They want to learn. And you have no problem educating new people that want to come work for you, correct? Is that how you're experiencing it right now? Yeah, we, we love it. And to paint a picture for people, uh, I've got a, I own a bicycle store in town and I've got the restaurant and, and, and I've got some e-commerce businesses and across the businesses, my, my gross workforce is about 50 people on our weekly payroll. And the farm, which is the newest, smallest business out of all of them, is the only one ever that I get people hitting me up to work for me all the time. They want to come and work on the farm. They want to learn how to farm this way. They want to work in the butchery. They And they'll do it for free. They'll come. They want to do it a day a week for free just to learn the skills so they can go and do their own thing or they want a permanent job. But there's so much interest. It's not very often that somebody uh, hits, in, hits me up on, with a phone call or an email and goes, I really want to work in your bike shop or I really want to work in your cafe. They're not value-driven to the same extent, the same way. 
and they're not something that really stands out of the status quo as trailblazing. Even though in those industries, I have done a fair bit of uh, unique uh, policy writing and, and marketing over the years. Something that's really challenging, like finding the farmhands and training them to the way that we do our uh, practices is really simple because nothing we do is complicated. You know, like moving cattle every day is no more difficult than moving them once a week or once a month. It's just more often. And it actually, it's easier because the animals are used to it. The staff get used to it really quick, obviously, because they're doing it every day. But the the labor gap in butchering is evidently enormous and growing day by day. See, these centralized packers have basically um, destroyed the trade of butchering and replaced it yeah. with the trade of boning. So a, in Australia, anyway, a butcher used to receive a carcass, cut all the primals off the bone, and then break them down and make you, your chops, your steaks, your mince, your sausage. And now, what a lot of butchers do, I've met fully, I've met and interviewed fully qualified butchers that have broken down a carcass once, to, you know, just to see how it's done and, and just to have That's that experience. It. And then they've been signed off. They've got their qualified butchery ticket, and their whole job revolves around generating a sales report, looking at what box meat they need to order from the packery that week and then when it comes in they'll make the mints make their sausages and they probably spend a few months learning merchandising so they can put it in the window put a sprig of parsley on top a little herb there and make it look pretty but when the animal comes in the back they don't actually know what to do because the the packery does it all for them but the people breaking it down in the in the in the abattoir who are the boners also only know half the process so in my butchery i've got a butcher and a boner that work for me now they can both do each other's jobs to a degree because they're both. I've been fortunate to have attracted um, highly skilled tradesmen because uh, they're few and far between. But even though they can both do the whole job, watching them work parallel and sometimes race each other is incredible. Like Richie, my butcher, who's who's a great butcher, he it might take him. Uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air here. But let's say it takes him twelve minutes to bust down a four quarter into primals. Larry the boner, who used to work in abattoirs, he'll do it in two and a half. <laughs> and so even though both these guys have sort of been doing the same thing for 30 years apiece, it is incredible. And I can understand why the industry gears itself towards those efficiencies because it makes sense. But every time you bring in efficiencies, you're, you're destroying resilience, the resiliency that the system can have. So, you know, the, the, the abattoirs all got shut down during uh, covid because the people were working too close and airborne breathing particles and all this nonsense. And then the whole thing topples over because you've lost, not only have you lost the, the slaughtering production, but half the skill set and experience has been retired from the workforce for a few months. And there's, and there's everyone's a specialist. So no one knows how to pick up their job anymore. It's so true. It's everybody's a specialist, just like the, you know, our medical communities. It, it, it is a pattern that you see across many industries. And, you know, everything you just said is the same story that I just heard from, you know, Cole Bolton, because he just opened up his own processing center down in Luling, Texas. So everybody listening to this, you know, as far as the United States, you guys, uh, you know, KNC Cattle, Hometown Meats, Beef Initiative, we're all partnered up in, in his processing center. Uh, you know, that's one of the biggest things is like, can't find that skill set because everything is so specialized. 
to where not everybody knows a collective. And, you know, I always like going into the grocery store and whenever I do my little tours to take pictures of the cartoon world is what I call it, is like, you know, I go through there and I'll talk to the butcher. You know, he has his white coat on. They look like a butcher and everything. There is no uh, knowledge there anymore. It's gone. It's just, they're playing dress ups. 100%. And, but I, you know, I here, love... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I love, I've heard Joel Salatin speak about his processing center that he bought in his region to, you know, to shore up his own supply chains. And I don't know the specifics of it, but it's something like every two hours, they rotate stations. So everyone, not only does that stop people having um, RSI or um, not enjoying their job or, you know, it's not, it being being bored and, and not being careful and not watching and cutting themselves. Like you can imagine there's so many things that it um, stops on an individual level and prevents on an individual level, but on a company structure, everyone knows how to do everything, everyone. Yeah. So when the guy in charge of um, bolting the animals and culling them has a sick day, it doesn't matter because the other 20 blokes know how to do it. So they're yep. in this diversity, although the people might not be coming as um, fast and efficient as they could be if they just had tunnel vision always doing one job you are building resiliency into the system and i think i think the lockdowns was a good enough wake up shake up and wake up and i hope people aren't forgetting it too quickly that they can they can now vote with their dollar and support farmers that are trying to not just focus on those efficiencies but build in integrity-based resiliencies for their communities into their systems because it costs a bit more, but if the people buy it, they're shoring up their own supply for the future. 100%. And, you know, not only the health benefits, everything that goes along with all of this, right? You know, here I am in the Texas Panhandle, and we have all the multinational packers everywhere. They're, I mean, this is the belly of the beast. And, you know, you talk about efficiencies. What that also leads to is it diminished workforce locally because what happens is you know it's not something that is desirable and here we have tyson we have cargill we have national we have of course jbs and what we see now is we see immigrants basically in white buses being bused to the basically processing plants and they're first coming over from you know many different countries but that's who they employ now in a local community. And so you see the finish efficiencies that they've really built into the systems is maybe the efficiency of cutting beef, but everything else that got devalued because of that. There is no more resiliency. And that's what we're seeing in our community. That's what we're seeing in our health. That's what we're seeing in our supermarket. Everything that we're looking at, you know, there's a debasement going all, all the way around. Uh, we had the same problems during COVID is that they lost some of the workforce people got sick, everything got cut back. Now they're up there and there's billboards across the city that I'm close to. It's like higher on bonus for 7,000, $10,000 just to work at these processing plants. They have that type of cash that they can throw at it. And, and so if you can bring a class of people, a group of people that really are in it for basically the right reasons, I think that's our, our avenue, our gateway to where people really do see that we do need a new set of skills as far as butchery and everything like that. There's a university that's not too far away from here, and they're actually bringing back a, a butchery class. 
So I'm seeing some people be more and more interested in getting back to, you know, what it was before these multinational Packers came into the, into the mix. So once again, I mean, this is stuff that we get to talk about at the summits. It's, it's something that, you know, we're going to basically build off of as we go through Australia, you have a a map of Australia behind you. Okay. I can kind of see parts of it. Right. Okay, a lot of Americans do not realize how big Australia is. And so let's talk about, you know, what we're going to try to do, what you're going to kick off, how the Australian Beef Initiative, what are we going to do? I'm going to be over there for at least a month, right? Probably more. I got a one-way ticket. So let's walk everybody through kind of our plans right now, what we've got ready. We mightn't let you go home, Slim. I know it. <laughs> I'm bringing my boy too. He might not want to come back. He's going to uh, move in with you guys. Bomb, bombshell on, on, he'll meet some blonde bombshell on Bondi Beach and settle down. There you go. <laughs> he doesn't even uh, understand so, what's about to happen. That's what's going to be a blast about all this. I love it. Yeah. So with our ABI event that we're uh, kicking off at the start of the tour, I guess there might be a few little dinners beforehand. It, it, it looks like, but you know, we're sort of trying to build a flagship event to kick off the tour. Uh, it's a Saturday and a Sunday. So Saturday Arvo, we're meeting locally at a pub, just a free meet and greet, turn up, shake hands, buy yourself a lemonade or a beer, whatever you like, and it's going to go for a few hours. And then we're going to roll downtown to a beautiful little restaurant that I've booked out. Uh, I've, I've booked out the whole venue. It sits about 34, 36 people. It's a gorgeous boutique little restaurant. Uh, Matt, the proprietor there, used to run my cafe back in the day, so I've got a really good working relationship with him, and I'm working closely with his head chef, Tara, and we're getting a three-course dinner, uh, all with our farm produce, so it'll all be, I don't, I'm not sure what proteins we're going to be using, but there'll definitely be a, a beef for mains, and then maybe a chicken entree and a, uh, a special dessert that we're keeping up our sleeve, it should be fun, and I'm going to, because it's such a nice, intimate little uh, venue where we're going to be doing musical chairs. So we've decided there's going to be three long tables of roughly 10 seats. And for every course, we're going to switch everyone's places up so everyone can meet everyone a little bit. And I'm also going to be giving presentations throughout the night, just talking, you know, this is our chicken and this is how we raise it. And this is why we do it this way, just because there's going to be some people at the dinner that won't come to the event. And I just think it'll be a nice way to sort of wrap that up into a bit of a uh, participatory uh, yeah. engaging dinner and then the next day so that that you can buy tickets for that dinner on event price they're like 75 80 percent sold out i think we've got like six tickets left or something like that uh and then the next day so the sunday's the big shebang as we call them in australia it's the shindig and we're kicking off on wolke farm which is just 10 minutes outside of Aubrey. i think seven in the morning or 7.30 in the morning, it's in the itinerary, and I'm going to be leading a two-and-a-half-hour farm tour around the farm. Now, I've been known to do five, six-hour farm tours. I've started farm <laughs> tours 7 in the morning, and I'm still standing in the shade of a tree with my arms up like Moses parting the Red Sea, 1 o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon, and I'm thinking, have you guys had enough yet? And they're saying no, and we keep going. We, we've accelerated the farm tour, and one of the reasons, we, one of the ways we've achieved this without sort of watering it down is where organizing the movements of all the animals so that when the date comes they'll all be nice and close uh around the shed and the uh i guess the entertainment area part of the farm so we're, we're, we're working on that now sort of adjusting all their rotations because everything's moving all the time to come back so there's not much walking but there's a lot of talking and after that we've got a couple great 
presentations. So we've got this fella called Texas Slim from the USA flying in, who's going to be painting a bit of a, a global beef resistance picture for us, which I'm really excited about. And then we have two doctors giving presentations. So we've got uh, Dr. Max Golhane talking about metabolic health and regenerative agriculture and talking about how not only does it matter what we eat, but it matters how that was produced uh, on, a, on a very specific um, lens in talking about nutrition and inputs. And then we've got another local doctor who I'm really excited about. He, he was a late ticket. He was a wild card that we managed to lock in, a doctor called uh, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, and he's becoming really quite famous in Australia. And he's just uh, created a talk called What's the Beef with Beef? Then I think it's a bit of a lunch break and then we're going to, so they're the sort of jabs to soften everyone up for the morning. And then we've got a couple of right hooks coming in in the evening and we've got John Tiernan and Izzy giving some presentations on Bitcoin and I guess uh, currency policy. What is Bitcoin? How do you use it? Do you want to use it? Do you want to set up, meet me off side of stage right now and I'll help you download a wallet and I'll flick you a few sats and you can, you can feel it. And this isn't a this isn't a uh, a Bitcoin uh, you it must it's not a Bitcoin diehard event. We're trying to bring people to the farm that want to meet their farmer, uh, understand what sound food is, uh, find access to sound food, and then if they're interested and we're ticking all their boxes and they want to access sound food with sound money, uh, we're there to give them that opportunity and share our knowledge with that with them as well. So I'm really hoping that people that just want to hear Dr. Pran come along. And then hear a bit of Bitcoin talk. And then I'm also hoping that people that just want to hear Bitcoin come and get to hear a bit about uh, metabolic health and the way we can raise chickens, not in sheds, but on pasture. Uh, so we're expecting about 120 people and it looks like we're going to get there. That event's also on Eventbrite. And I think we've sold 30, 35% of the tickets so far. And we're still a month out from the event, exactly a month today. So yeah. I'd encourage people listening as a bit of an event plug uh, please don't wait to the last minute to purchase tickets because we've got a lot of heavy lifting to do on the farm in terms of setup. And, and, and it's, you know, we're, we're trying to put on a real show. So we're bringing in um, infrastructure, hiring infrastructure from in town to make the event uh, professional and comfortable. And the later the, the numbers are finalised, the harder it is for us on the logistical um, point. So if you want to come and you're coming, book your ticket and I'll see you there. Yeah, and, and that's a good point because everything that you just said is kind of how we held the events in you know the United States, the summits. Because you don't want to be overly emphasized in Bitcoin. You don't want to overly emphasize, you know, you know, the the beef side of things. What you find though is both people come together and you know it's such an educational experience, it's such a, a networking experience, it's such a good balance that you don't even have to work about, work at it. It just it happened to every event that we had, it was pretty much the same thing. The diversity just molds together. And and for everybody, what Jacob just said, get your tickets now if you're in Australia, because what what happens is that there's a lot of planning that 
does that, that people don't see. I know I just did five of these things and we did with volunteers. Each place was different. It was a ranch, a farm or a, you know, a gazebo, wherever it was, it was always something different, but there's a lot that goes into this. So if you, if you're thinking about going, just go ahead and get your tickets. Now, one thing as when this airs, Jacob, uh, the beef initiative website, beefinitiative.com go in there. There's a tab there that says upcoming events. I've put everything that's going on in Australia in our links. And so everybody that's, you do, if you don't know Jacob, you don't know how to access, you know, Eventbrite, all that kind of stuff, we'll make it easy on you. It's on the Beef Initiative website, upcoming events. It's got everything that we're doing in Australia. Uh, we're going to leave Wokey Farms and then we're going to go travel up the road a little bit. And there's another event up there that we're going to go to. Before we come to your place, we're going to be with Seal and Tony out there. They're going to pick us up at the airport. We're going to go and hang out with them. They're going to have a dinner in a Croatian center there. So we're going to have big summit like yours. We're going to have dinners, get togethers, meetups. We're going to have ranch tours. We're going to have another summit. We're going to try to do another summit. And we've got plans for the 1st of February all the way into Bush Bash, which is basically March 24th, 25th. So there's a full six, seven weeks that we're going to be traipsing around Australia, bringing everybody across the globe, this beef intelligence, this food intelligence, and how everybody, I told everybody from the beginning, Jacob, I said, this is an international lifestyle that you guys just don't understand yet, but you're going to start figuring out what I mean by that. And people really are looking for something and what we're doing. I tell everybody, we opened up about a hundred gates this year within the beef initiative of the United States. This year, we're going to open up a thousand gates across the world and you took the lead on this and i think it's going to be a fascinating journey i mean i'm going to get to wilkie farms like a day and a half before anybody else does and you and i are just going to get to hang out and you're going to put my butt to work i guess aren't you so, oh there's always something to do yeah there is it never stops i might probably. order i might order another two thousand trees to plant to arrive just <laughs> when you get there Let's talk about that. There's a good story and we're going to keep this going because I forgot this story. But you, you talked about, you know, when COVID hit and uh, they wanted you to wear a mask at the hardware store. So what did you end up doing? Yeah, I, I didn't really uh, appreciate being told what to do. You know, that just in like back to my earlier point, Slim, there's a reason my family's self-employed. You know, so as soon as somebody told me what, what we had to do, I, it just didn't really sit well with me. And it didn't make a lot of sense. You know, sitting down at a restaurant, mask off, standing up at a restaurant, mask on, like all this sort of nonsense. So the local hardware store, I went in one day with my dog in the trolley to buy some lumber and I got accosted at the door and uh, just, I didn't fight with the person, but I just politely disagreed and, and went my own way. And jumped on the internet and I bought myself my own portable mill. So I don't go to the hardware store anymore. I head out to my farm. <laughs> I, I take my mill and set it up over a log that's laying on the ground. I put my headphones on and I play farmer for a few hours and I, and I mill the timber I need and, and just get on with the day. And uh, that's freedom. That is. That's. I love that. You took that picture of you just laid on that 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 big old trunk. It is just like, man, this is an operator. Jacob is going to be a blast to get to know. I mean, I just I. I've always, I come from West Texas. We don't have a lot of trees, okay? I always wanted to have a freaking sawmill so I could cut trees up. <laughs> so yeah. that's one thing you can make me do whenever we get out there. Just put me to work on the sawmill. Okay. Good. 
Yeah, but, uh, you know, let's give some thanks to everybody that's helping us right here. We've got people like John. We've got Nathan. Of course, we've got the Wizard of Oz. We've got uh, Brisket. We've got Syl. We've got Tony. Of course, Izzy, man. Izzy's been very key about all of this. Um, go ahead and give some names. And so everybody can say, hey, we're all thinking about you. We're all talking to each other, every, you know, each day because we do. We have signal chat groups. We're coordinating every day. We're, we're making sure that everybody spreads this word. So everybody that basically is watching this, help us spread this out. Go to thebeefinitiative.com. Look at the events, you know, start networking. This is how it's done. You don't have to ask for permission. Get out to Jacob's farm. Come out if you can't. We're going to be going all the way up the East Coast. And I don't know, we might end up over in Perth as well, over on WA, right? That's what I've heard. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to thank all the speakers that are coming because everyone's coming is tra not only traveling to Aubrey, like we've got Dr. Pran's coming to Aubrey from Sydney, which is okay. know, nearly seven hours drive away. They're not only traveling on their own dime and putting themselves up in accommodation on their own dime, but they're speaking for free. And these are people that um, at, at some events, they can they can draw real dollars to um, put their message forward. And they've bought into our message enough to donate their time and, and turn up and invest in the movement. And uh, a special little thanks to my darling wife, Anne. She's done a lot behind the scenes. She's going to be doing all the catering, all the cooking. She's done all the graphics work. A uh, few people are paying for tickets with stats and she's running the spreadsheet so we don't lose anybody's tickets. So we don't <laughs> overbook events. And uh, I just take screenshots of things that need actioning and just flick them to her. And she's, a, she's an executor, my wife. She's a savage. Yeah, it, it's just so fun when this happens because everybody's in it to win it. Basically, everybody wants it to succeed, right? I mean, yeah. there's no, there's no, uh, you know, second guessing. It's just like, hey, what do we got to get done? Let's get it done. Here we go. So, you know, we're about a month out. Uh, I'm starting to plan. Uh, my plans is, you know, kind of transition out of everything. We've got so much going on here in the United States. And, you know, one thing I want to talk to you about is product design whenever I come over there. And, you know, as far as how do we look about being something that an independent farmer, rancher as you are, is how do you look at the product in which you have and how do you design that? Because you are an entrepreneur. You are a business owner. You, you know, you, you've never been employed. You're not employable. And, and that's a damn good thing. So, um, you know, I, I think everybody can learn a wealth of knowledge from you. I'm going to bring what I've learned over here in the United States over to you. You're going to teach me. I'm going to bring it back to the United States. I'm going to, you know, we're going to do this information share. And I, what I tell everybody is like, whenever you go out and shake a rancher's or farmer's hand, what you're really trying to do is make sure that you send them Christmas cards for the rest of their lives. And they're sending you Christmas cards the rest of your lives. And I guarantee you, your life is going to be better. You're going to be happier. Your family is going to be stronger. You're going to be healthier. Everything about this is based on food intelligence that makes our children strong, teaches them relationships. And so I can't wait to come over and, and basically establish these lifelong relationships with everybody that's over in Australia. Australia and everybody that's welcoming me over. So in closing, what else can we say? But it, 
I'll tell you one thing, we're going to do a podcast whenever we're over there. And whenever we're yeah. done, we're going to do a recap. So everybody can kind of hear if you, you know, if you don't have access, but we will be doing a lot of video and audio. We will be showing Jacob's farm. We'll be streaming to Instagram, to Twitter. Everybody will be, you know, as much as we can, we'll get, we'll get coordinated on that. But, uh, you know, uh, what, anything in closing you'd like to say, Jacob? Oh, well, I'd just like to thank you for having me on for the chat and giving me the platform to share what we're doing in this, in Australia here with the Australian Beef Initiative. If uh, anybody, I'm very contactable, so I'm on I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and my email is jakewalke at gmail.com. And if anybody wants to pick my brain personally or platform me somewhere, and we can get the mission of treating animals, environments better, feeding people, healing food, building community and making money. They're our five core tenants at the farm. If anybody wants me to platform to share that good message, I'll be there anytime. That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, that's something that we're going to do. We're going to, you and I are designing an infographic that we're going to release out. There's certain things that you guys pay attention. If you guys are out there running a podcast, Jacob doesn't mind being on a podcast. We're really trying to spread this out. This is, this is what we do is our philosophy is that we build out locally and we broadcast globally. So help us. Uh, we're building out locally right here and now we're going to broadcast globally. So everybody help out, everybody give back. Um, I'm going to come back and do some closing in a minute, but Jacob, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I can't wait to meet you and your family. And uh, I'm very inspired for all of the work you've already done and what you know what what we're about to do together so appreciate you brother thanks slim all right take care man we'll see you soon hey guys back at you uh just said uh I'll see you soon to Jacob. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. This has been a, a, a fun podcast, uh, a great conversation. These things could go on for five to six hours. It'd be easy, uh, you know, whenever we get to talking. And I understand out there uh, from you guys that are watching this, the viewers and the supporters, that, you know, this rabbit hole goes deep. This is a deep, deep subject that's going around the globe right now. Um, you know, it, it's, it, there's so much education out there and, you know, it's, it's kind of daunting for me sometimes to, you know, which direction am I, I going to go? Is it going to be about, you know, product sales as far as beef? Cause we want everybody to have access to the best beef in the world through the beef initiative, or is it going to be deeper into education? Is it going to be something that, you know, people to help people get started? Is it going to be about processing centers? Is it, is it going to be the, the form of food intelligence that I, started everything with as far as going down those rabbit holes of you know what did happen to our system what happened in the early 1900s what happened with the rockefellers i get that all the time you know what happened after 1971 the one thing i tell everybody is acceptance is a key if we can as a society you know be it whatever continent that you're on if we can accept that what is going on with our food and our health is there's an issue accept it and say, hey, I'm not going to participate anymore. I've been saying since George, I said, you know, told everybody up on stage at Will Harris's place out at White Oak, I said, quit validating the deceptions. 
it's time to take a stand. And it's, it's not about, you know, um, division. This is about everybody getting together. You know, the beef initiative, I tell everybody all the time, because we get everybody from all the way over from grass, you know, fed grass finishes, the only way to do anything. And all the way over to commodity cowboy and here in the United States, I want everybody to be crystal clear. The beef initiative is about saving the great American rancher in our heritage and our legacy and what got us here. If we don't, we will be eating multinational food that doesn't, and it is not grown in the United States. This is where we're going. It's already happening in the beef industry and people don't even realize that they're not eating American beef. You know, it can say harvested in the United States, product of the United States, USDA prime. That doesn't mean anything that really, you know, interests me anymore. I quit validating the deceptions a long time ago when it came to, you know, food in general. And, and now, you know, especially within the beef industry, we're not picking a fight. We're saying we're not going to participate. Is that okay? Do we have the right to say that we're not going to participate? We're not going to give you consumer demand anymore. We're going to go over here and give our consumer demand to those who want to feed me and I can have a relationship and my children can know their children. Oh, is that how we got here? Yeah, that's how we got here. That's how every one of you got here. It's time to take a stand. It's not that big of a shift as far as your lifestyle, who you are as a person, who you are as a parent. It's not that hard to go ahead and say, hey, I'm putting my foot down and I'm not going to validate the deceptions anymore. And I got into all of this. If you don't know my story, go back and look at the podcast. I've been very transparent. You know, this is about saving lives. This is about saving children's lives. The, the, the health of a nation is compromised right now. That compromise and that, that is, has taken place has spread from the United States over to other countries because of the multinational food industrial food system in which we have been operating in for, you know, over 50 years now that has basically destroyed the metabolical health of the United States. Um, it's not something that it's, the, the, the information and the intelligence is easy to get. Just go look at the CDC, go look at the reports of, you know, obesity, diabetes, everything, go look at how we treat things. You know, we, we're not, we're not proactive or reactive when it comes to medical anymore. Uh, our doctors are now technicians. Uh, everybody specialized. Nobody is a doctor anymore. They know how to do one thing. They know how to do the insurance. They know how to write prescriptions. You know, we've all been a product of something in the medical industry. Well, the medical industry thrives in the way it does because basically our health is being destroyed through our consumption model. And I say that from audio to video to food. Quit validating this deception, folks. Um, just a reminder, I don't have all the wonderful people that have boosted and stacked sats and all that kind of stuff through Podcasting 2.0. Go out there and uh, download Podcasting 2.0 through the Fountain app and be, be a participant in this. Uh, next week, I'll have a big old stack of people that have been given back to I Am Texas Slim Foundational uh, Trust, uh, I Am Texas Slim uh, Podcasting through boosting and streaming sats. Uh, there's going to be a lot of taking place. We're going to have some new releases of product. Uh, one fun announcement that I get to announce probably today is that there's going to be a new product line within the Beef Initiative. It's called Texas Slim's Cuts. Uh, Right now, that's in partnership with Cole Bolton and KNC Cattle. We're bringing you different cuts. I started something called the Cattleman's Feast. We're going to let you and educate you and give you market access to beef that you would never have 
in the grocery store, supermarket, or wherever you're buying your beef. That's for sure. We know that. And what we're going to do now is give you market access to the cattleman, uh, Texas Slim's Cuts, which is based on the philosophy of a cattleman's feast. And it's something you should be doing every day of the week. Uh, we're going to get rid of all these uh, basically uh perceptions that if you source from your local producers it's more expensive it's just not the case show me your pocketbook show me your checking account and i'll tell you how you're living your life okay whenever you try to say that buying and uh consuming beef from your local producer is more than you can afford i can tell you man let's look at your consumption model what are you going to give up when you start eating pure animal protein and pure food? Truth in food basically is financial wisdom, folks. And that's something you need to accept. And it gives a form of clarity to you. And your life does improve. Your, your pocketbook improves. Your relationships improve. Your health improves. Your kids start, hmm, what? Your kids start performing better than most? Yeah. Because the kid, the, the food that the kids are consuming across the United States right now is poison. It's as simple as that. I'll, you know, if you don't understand that uh, food is medicine and medicine is a drug and our food that we consume now is now is a drug. So you can say that drug is food and food is drug. It's true. So let's, uh, let's accept and uh, acceptance is a key. No mediocrity, no half measures here. Take a stand, go out and shake a rancher's hand be involved with the beef initiative. It's international lifestyle. I'm taking my boy and uh, old Liz is coming with us. Uh, babe Zoo Bitcoin, follow her on Twitter. She's been, uh, she had the very, one of the very first Cattleman's Feast. And so we're going to bring you as much information as we can back from Australia. Then we're going to go to Thailand and who knows where we're going to go. I'm, I don't know. There's hints about uh, Nigeria in June, July. I'm doing a podcast with old Princey, uh, one spit and tomorrow, maybe we'll go to Europe. Guys, spread the word. Let's uh let's innovate. Let's build out locally and broadcast globally. I am Texas Slim. Are you?